You're listening to a recording from the 2017 Mockingbird Conference held at St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. All right, it is so wonderful to be back here at Mockingbird. It's been a couple of years since I've been able to be here, and I'm just so very pleased to be here once again. Thank you, John, for another classic brother introduction. I think I had similar treatment a few years ago. The title of my little talk today is called, Is Hiding in Plain Sight, The Lost Doctrine of Sin. The Pharisees said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The theologian Robert Jensen makes a comment in one of his works, almost in passing, that I've been ruminating on for the past couple of years. It comes in a passage where he's writing about the place of the Christian church in the modern world. Jensen points out that in the ancient church, there developed an, an instructional institution, as he calls it, a kind of school called the catechumenate. The purpose of this catechumenate was to provide people who wanted to become Christians with a kind of schooling and shaping in Christianity. This was seen to be necessary in a largely pagan context because, as Jensen puts it, quote, life in the church was too different from life out of the church for people to tolerate the transfer without some preparation. In the passage, Jensen wonders whether the time has come for the church to remember this aspect of its mission to revive the catechumenate. Quote, the late modern church is now returned to the situation in which the catechumenate was born. Those to be integrated into the life of the church come from an alien culture. The church's life, if she is faithful, must be a shock and a puzzlement to them. In other words, in an increasingly secular world, Christians can no longer take for granted that their ideas and practices and morals will be intelligible anymore to contemporary people. People simply don't have the language or the concepts anymore to understand Christianity. Now there's a lot I could say about that, but what particularly struck me is that his point is, I think, undeniably true of one Christian doctrine in particular, the doctrine of sin. It seems to me that the doctrine of sin does indeed very often come across today as a puzzlement and as a shock. Certainly this is true of my students. My job, as John mentioned, is to teach theology to undergraduate and graduate students at a research university. This means that for most of the past nine years, first at Cambridge and then at Oxford and now at Nottingham, I've been giving undergraduate introductory lectures in systematic theology. In these lectures, I try my best to communicate the key doctrines and concepts that form the core of traditional Christian theology. Probably something like half the students in, in these courses are Christians of some kind or other in a given year, and about half are not. 
We talk about things like the incarnation, uh, we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, we talk about the idea that human beings are created in the image of God, and so on. I like teaching, I like to think I do at least a decent job of this in most weeks. But there's one topic where I never feel like they're tracking with me. One theological bone that they just can't seem to swallow, and that is the doctrine of sin. When I try to explain that Christians have traditionally believed that human beings are deeply and profoundly flawed from birth, and furthermore that God is somehow unhappy with these flaws, I watch my students' eyes grow skeptical. I watch their posture shift, the way that students always do when they disagree with what you're telling them. They say, so it's the annual kind of skeptical moment in these introductory lectures. As a teacher, it's a difficult situation. What do I do to overcome this skepticism? Do I recite statistics about the world wars and about genocide, about human trafficking, and basically just kind of try to rhetorically pound them into submission? But then they'll just think of sin as a kind of big, angry abstraction, and they won't actually understand it the way that Christian theology does. The second option is to kind of go personal, get them to engage in some kind of self-analysis. It would basically be to do exactly what Sarah just did. And that's actually the most effective way to talk about sin. But I work in a research university, and that strategy is flying pretty close to the sun. As a teacher, it's dangerous ground to set yourself up as your student's therapist, and that's even more so when it comes to religion. I'd have to kind of preach at them, and I'm not allowed to do that for, I think, good reasons. So that's kind of off the table. Another option is a bit safer. I could refer to moral problems that I know they're aware of and that they care about, like racism and misogyny and Wall Street greed. I could say that Christianity has a term for the way in which the world is full of big, complex evils like these, and that term is sin. This might be a good opening. Certainly it would get them listening. The problem with this strategy, though, is that it carries substantial risks of them just slightly missing the point. You see, most college students, like most human beings, frankly, think of things like racism and sexism and capitalist misbehavior as bad things that people out there do. Other people. Maybe people we know, but not really us. Now, the reason all of this matters is not actually because I think all the students need to believe in the reality of sin. As a university professor, that's not really my business, at least not in the classroom. The reason is actually pedagogical. You see, almost none of the classic Christian doctrines or dogmas make any sense unless you understand the sin part of the puzzle. When you teach introductory theology, you quickly discover that the doctrine of sin is fundamental to the coherence and intelligibility of Christian belief. And this is true whether we like it or not. In other words, my students won't actually do well on the exam. <laughs> they really, uh, unless they acquire some kind, they won't understand, they won't get a deep understanding of Christology or the doctrine of the Trinity or the doctrine of Revelation unless they have some kind of feel, at least a sympathy in their minds for the doctrine of sin for, and for why Christians have thought it's so important through the centuries. Just quickly, to take the example of the most basic Christian claim about Jesus, 
the belief that he's fully human and fully divine. That's textbook theology 101 stuff you explain if you're a guy like me. So the reasons that Christians came to believe over the first four and a half centuries of Christian history that Christ is fully divine and fully human at the same time makes no sense without the doctrine of sin. Very thoughtful people concluded at the time, kind of monastic bearded people mostly, that only a human savior could enter our condition fully enough to save it, a fully human, a real human. At the same time, only a divine savior could actually pull off the job. Thus, paradoxically, but truly, Christ must be both fully human and fully divine. Otherwise, he couldn't deal properly with the reality of sin and with its chief consequence, death. So you see, without a doctrine of sin, the basic Christology, which we confess in the creeds, is just a kind of weird and unnecessary paradox from the fifth century. And the same could be said of many other theological topics. In the edifice of Christian belief, the doctrine of sin is a major load-bearing structure. It's not theologically optional. To lose it, to downplay it, to reframe it in terms that are more low-key or less offensive to our sense of self-worth is in the long run to render Christianity unintelligible, a floating shell unmoored from its historical foundation, from its own inner logic, and indeed from our lives. In fact, within the classic topics of systematic theology, I think probably only Christology, only our beliefs about Christ himself are as fundamental in terms of their constitutive impact on all other Christian doctrines and ideas. So this brings me back to my students and their skepticism. And I've got the students here, they're just a proxy for you know, modern people, just in case you were wondering. If my job is to help them understand this doctrine so they can do well on the exam, then I need to understand why they find the doctrine so off-putting. With that in mind, and many of you will have many insights here, but my best guess for now is the following. When modern people hear the word sin, when they hear someone describe the idea that human beings are fundamentally flawed in a very deep way, that human beings seek their best interest over that of others in their nature and not just peripherally or occasionally, and when they hear that human beings might on this basis be liable fundamentally to judgment, when they hear all this, I think what they actually hear is something like this. It is right to judge people for their flaws rather than having compassion on them. Or, I think I am better than other people and have the right to judge them. I think that's what they hear. So in a way you could say that my students don't like the idea of sin because it sounds immoral to them. My students get uncomfortable because the doctrine of sin is heard as a violation of their moral values. It encourages judgmentalism and repression and not accepting people as they are. And it informs kind of creepy religious power dynamics that they don't know much about but they've heard are out there. And actually in some cases have experienced. Now, it isn't in fact the case, at least in my own view, that these inferences they're making about the judgmentalism, about the lack of compassion, and so on, are inaccurate conclusions to draw from the Christian doctrine of sin. They are not accurate. The reason people draw such conclusions is because they've never really had a chance to think the issue through, or else because the form of Christianity they have encountered is a decadent one. 
Given this, I think one, one little thing I can do for them, and also perhaps for us today, is to give a few kind of categories, to give some language, some ways of understanding what's going on here uh, that might help us to rescue this doctrine, which I've said is so important, from its current place of dishonor, and to see why, in fact, the doctrine of sin is a diagnostic tool of great power. In other words, this morning, I want to engage in a little of what Robert Jensen would call catechesis. Let me start by observing, and this is sort of Christian theology 101, that first and foremost, sin is not in fact best identified as specific acts of moral transgression. Say, committing adultery, or embezzling from a charity, lying to get your way, and so on. Those are what we might call sins, but they are not really sin itself. Rather, in the first instance, theologically speaking, sin is a basic condition under which human lives exist. Sin is a way of describing the fact that there's a fundamental flaw in the human system and to explain why that system keeps throwing up errors. The doctrine of sin is a way of saying that reality is like a lens with this subtle but pervasive flaw. So everything that goes through it just gets distorted. It describes the fact that everything that happens has this slight tilt towards the perverse and the cruel. That there's a fundamental bias against flourishing that appears to be written in our hearts. So we need to think of sin initially as a condition. It's like gravity, only it causes enormous suffering. And this condition isn't just an idea, it's a reality. It's a fact on the ground and always has been. It's just that we late modern people have forgotten how to name it. Sin hasn't disappeared, we've just lost the equipment to detect it. The patient still has cancer, even if the MRI machine is broken. Luther described the situation of 21st century Western culture very well in his commentary on Psalm 51. Quote, the Gentiles who are without the word do not properly understand these evils even though they lie right in the middle of them. Thus they cannot properly evaluate any of human nature because they do not know the source from which these calamities have come upon mankind. In other words, what Luther is saying and what we need to, is that we, what we need to understand about sin because without it, we will not be able to fully understand or describe the reality of the evils and the sufferings that we see around us. The Gentiles, Luther's saying, uh, are like those who try to make sense of the cancer they're suffering from, but don't make use of the best diagnostic instruments available. But if sin is real and it's around, then where is it gone? Well, my main kind of point today, which I'll go through now, is that sin is hiding in plain sight. We've just started calling it other things. This morning I want to just mention two. They're not exhaustive, but they, they represent this kind of phenomenon. So one way that we've relabeled sin is as what psychologists call cognitive bias. The term cognitive bias refers to the various ways that our brains operate in such a way that we come to so we say less than fully rational conclusions. And this has 
big empirical basis, cognitive bias, various cognitive biases. So often these operations seem to have some kind of adaptive function. These biases have an adaptive function. They help us to not despair in the face of overwhelming odds, for example. It's good, we'll, we'll survive better, you know, um, if we have these biases, even if they're irrational. And so they sort of give an evolutionary advantage, that kind of thing. Usually when you actually read about cognitive bias today, it's in the context of some article on why political opinions are so difficult to change through rational argument, or, and this, this happens all the time, why human beings are really bad at investing money. You often hear about cognitive bias in relation to investing. We always buy high and we sell low and we're just really bad at, at gauging markets. So you read these kind of pieces and you're like, ah, so true, human beings and their foibles. Ah, cognitive bias. Seems to me, however, that much of what we call cognitive bias is in fact a scientific language for empirically verifiable, hardwired, biological facts of human selfishness and irrationality. In other words, sin. For example, there's a large literature on what are called self-serving biases. They're actually called that. Like what cognitive sciences, scientists call the fundamental attribution error. Many of you will know what this is. The fundamental attribution error, it's such a good name, is the fact that human beings tend very strongly to attribute good things that happen to us to our own efforts and bad things that happen to us to external factors and vice versa when it comes to other people. It's true, this is, this is very well uh, documented, um, as I'm sure you're very surprised to hear. So when I don't get a promotion at my job, I blame the system. No one could have done better in my circumstances. My boss gave me all the bad jobs, there's a headwind in the markets, whatever. But when Steve over there doesn't get the promotion, I blame Steve. Kind of lazy. <laughs> Little bit of a moron. So the fundamental attribution error thus allows us very conveniently to maintain the view that we ourselves are awesome, despite evidence to the contrary, and encourages us to judge other people as not awesome, despite evidence to the contrary. So once upon a time we called this sin. Now we call it the fundamental attribution error. So when it gets pointed out to us with this new special name, we can say, oh, sort of throw up our hands, sheepish grin, well, you know, it's, it's kind of not great, but what can I do? My brain's wired this way, not my fault, man. Here's another bias with good empirical support, and uh, has two names, both great. Choice supportive bias, also known as post-purchase rationalization. Basically, this one describes the well-known effect that once we've made a decision about something, say, to buy a pair of shoes instead of, you know, not buying them and saving the money, then we're highly disposed to view the decision in retrospect as a good one. In other words, to think that the reasons we bought it are really great and to forget or ignore or downplay reasons that maybe we shouldn't have. Now, obviously, this applies more to more than just buying stuff. It's why we all think that most of our past decisions are awesome even in the face of evidence that many of them were not. Post-purchase rationalization allows us to avoid learning lessons from failure and to continue thinking of ourselves as wide and prudent and canny in our decisions despite clear evidence to the contrary. Now, the English reformer Thomas Cranmer knew about post-purchase 
rationalization. Many of you here will know Ashley Null's great line about Cranmer, about how Cranmer in, uh, believed that if what the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Cranmer knew about post-purchase rationalization. And this helps explain, in fact, how human beings through history have justified awful actions towards each other through retroactive rationalization. But it just doesn't sound as troubling when you call it choice-supportive bias. So cognitive biases like these are, I think, a very concrete way in which the condition of reality that I'm calling sin is standing right there in front of us in plain sight. We just call it something else, something more scientific and less threatening. Now there's another way that we've relabeled what early modern and pre-modern people called sin. Another way that it's hiding in plain sight. And this one, I'll just say up front, this one's a bit trickier. Because I think actually a lot of good has come from this. What I'm referring to is what you might call the medicalization of the symptoms of sin. So in the Reformation era, which I study, personal, psychological, and emotional anguish was understood to be the chief sign of the presence of sin in the world, you know, along with death. In the early 16th century, the symptoms of sin, the way you knew you had the disease, were things like powerful guilt feelings, or intense anxieties, or a deep sense of despair, or an abiding feeling of personal worthlessness. Luther put it like this in a remarkable quote, I think, in his commentary on Psalm 51. Quote, This knowledge of sin is not some sort of speculation or an idea which the mind thinks up for itself. It's a true feeling, a true experience, and a very serious struggle of the heart. The knowledge of sin is itself the feeling of sin. So this is a remarkable statement. The knowledge of sin is itself the feeling of sin. But what sorts of feelings and experiences did he have in mind? And do we still have those experiences today? Well, in one of the great theological texts of that era, which I think I talked about last time I was speaking here, but no, uh, the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Luther, Martin Luther's colleague, Philip Melanchthon, described at great length these experiences, these feelings, these clues to the reality of sin which he believed that only belief in Christ could truly help to relieve. As we go through our lives, Melanchthon said, we experience genuine terror and we end up in despair. He talks about the anxieties and terrors of sin and death and the way that we learn the truth about God's law only in the midst of genuine sorrows and terrors. He quotes Psalm 6, Be gracious to me, Lord, for I am languishing. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are shaking with terror. And Melanchthon interpreted all these feelings, all these powerful affects or emotions, as the consequence of the evidence of God's wrath against sin. In such real terrors, as he puts it, the conscience experiences, quote, the horrible and indescribable wrath of God. Here's the problem, though. Modern people read these lines and they say, well, people just don't fear God like that anymore. People aren't just sitting at home feeling anxious about their sins waiting to be smited. Lutheran theologian Jonathan Lindman speaks for many, I think, when he says, quote, traditional preoccupation with the forgiveness of sins no longer speaks with immediate intelligibility in our current milieu. The challenge of our age is not individual sin, but isolation, alienation, and broken community life. 
Now, I think it is indeed true that people aren't, for the most part, sitting around wondering if God will forgive them for their sins. But I don't think the conclusion Lindman then draws from this is right. The reason I think Lindman is wrong is that the feelings Melanchthon is describing are just as rampant as they were in the 16th century, if not more so. The difference is that today we medicalize these symptoms. And in so doing, we remove them from the religious sphere. It never occurs to us to connect these things to religion. We still have all the anxieties and the terrors, we just don't think they have anything to do with God. So for example, we're very well aware that many people suffer from crippling anxiety, awful, painful, debilitating anxiety. But today we see this as the consequence of an anxiety disorder when we prescribe helpful drugs and cognitive behavioral therapy. Likewise, we know that people are still full of powerful guilt feelings, but instead of sending them to a minister or a priest, we recommend mindfulness therapy. People still suffer from profound and durable feelings of worthlessness and despair, but now we call it depression, and we send them to a psychiatrist. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood here. I think our medical understanding of these painful feelings and conditions is absolutely accurate on its own terms. I think therapies like antidepressants and CBT and mindfulness are gifts of God to help relieve our many sufferings in this veil of tears. In fact, I think there's something profoundly Christian about separating mental health from the core of the person. The core which God said is good and beloved and made for communion with him. So to medicalize these experiences and in their more minor forms too, helps give us compassion where in an earlier era there might have been only judgment. And I think the world is a better place for it. But at the same time, there is no question uh, that this is one of the reasons that traditional Christian understanding of sin, uh, which people think is so implausible today, is in fact hiding in plain sight. We take these crucial clues, as Melanchthon and Luther saw them, clues to the glitch in the system, indicators of the flaw in the heart, and we medicalize them. And there are certain problems that arise when we view these things in exclusively medical terms. In particular, I think it perhaps becomes hard to take seriously the very real consequences of our very real problems on those around us. It's one thing to say, don't judge me for being depressed. My brain is broken and I can't help it. As uh, the, one of the protagonists says in the second season, the amazing second season of the show, You Are the Worst, one of the great descriptions of depression on television. Uh, and it's, it's really very moving, but that's her line is often, my brain is broken. And this is in fact a truth, it's a profound truth so far as it goes. But what about the fact that my depression also means that during that period of personal darkness, I am an absent father to my small children. I just don't care about their needs as much as I otherwise would. Saying my brain is broken doesn't change the fact that my children get hurt. They feel unnoticed and unloved. They wonder if it's their fault. Likewise, what about anxiety? The fact that it can and often rightly should be called a, a, a serious disorder doesn't mean it doesn't make life miserable for the people who have to deal with the anxious person. Or what about the devastation in many lives that can be caused by the addictions of one? So it seems to me that understanding such brokenness as some of the many consequences of the fact 
that all human beings are operating under a universal condition called sin gives us a way of holding together the compassion birthed through the medicalization of sin's symptoms while not ignoring the fact that there are real and terrible consequences to our brokenness. And also the fact that somehow the broken brain is still my broken brain, even if I have no power over it. So I want to go back to my students for a minute. In light of what I've been saying, I think we can now say that they resist the doctrine of sin in significant part because it sounds like the doctrine blames people for things which are in fact natural, medical, psychological conditions and problems. They assume that to add a moral valence to such things would be to engage in victim blaming. How could a person be judged for it if it's not their fault? And that's a good impulse, you know, I mean on its own terms. But the key here, I think, lies behind this notion of fault and blame. I think what we in fact see in the resistance to the idea that things with natural, strong natural explanations might also be explicable as sin is the baseline cultural and human assumption that something can only be understood as a moral problem if the person in question has freely chosen it. So maybe there's some medical conditions that it's a little bit okay to blame the patient for. Maybe they've made bad food choices, as we say these days. Um, and that's why they have some ailment. Certainly you can just a little, there's a little bit of room to, to blame a smoker uh, when they get sick. Uh, sort of on the quiet. They should have known better. But you can't blame the consequences of the, the, the big ones, the anxiety disorders, the depressions, um, and so on on someone. They never had a choice. They were born this way. So in other words, we resist the notion of sin because we don't know how to think of moral transgression other than as a form of making bad choices. The belief that we must let the world off the hook for its problems and its sufferings because so many of them were not chosen only makes sense if we also believe quite robustly in the freedom of the will. But here we run into problems. The fact is the world is still really, really screwed up. People still do terrible and selfish things all the time. And it's demonstrably the case that, given the chance, we do tend to oppress others, to seek our personal advantage at the expense of our neighbors, that we're heavily biased towards plugging our ears to the sufferings of those around us, especially where it actually might strike close to home. So what happens if you want to acknowledge that such evils do exist but you also believe that the only true form that human moral transgression can take is active and freely chosen moral evil. Well, you end up in a terrible bind because you can't make sense of evils that are not freely chosen. I think this is part of why most moral discourse today seems to focus on structural evil. Evils which are absolutely real, I think. Um, but we have to lay the blame for all evils on big structures because we no longer have a vocabulary for making sense of the fact that just because the realities of personal sin can be explained in other terms, uh, that they almost never look or feel like, the, the, the realities of personal sin almost never look or feel like deliberate and freely chosen evil. Once you believe that if something isn't chosen, it can't be truly morally destructive, 
you have to start blaming things outside of the sphere of your actual experienced life. To turn the lens inward is too uncomfortable. How can it be my fault if I couldn't help it? Jesus had a way of talking about all of this. For Jesus, both things were true. The sins of the world really are my fault, and I really and truly can't help it. Remember what he said? Those who are healthy have no need of a doctor, but the sick. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Here the moral knot becomes untangled. In the eyes of such mercy, human beings are indeed caught in an unbearable situation. We are truly transgressors, and we truly cannot help it. Our brains and our hearts are broken. We need an answer from outside, one that has both compassion and moral seriousness. And well, you know the rest. So to conclude, what have I said? That's the thing. We all learned that from dad, I think. What have I said? Anyway. Um, first, I said that the doctrine of sin is basic to the structure of Christian belief, such that to lose touch with it for Christ is for Christianity to become incoherent and incomprehensible. Second, I said that sin is hiding in plain sight, for example, in the biases and conditions that shape our sufferings and our complicity in the sufferings of others. We've just learned to relabel it as other things. Third, I said that the reason modern people resist the idea of sin is that we believe by default that only freely chosen sin is really sin. And most sin is in fact not freely chosen. The problem with this is that it fails to explain most destructive behavior in the world. It lets us off the hook and at the expense of our not really being able to understand the world around us honestly. And finally, I've said that understanding sin as a universal human condition gives us a language for understanding how we are both always complicit and yet never exclusively responsible for our troubles. It makes it possible to have compassion on people and no serious expectation of change and yet not to pretend that bad things are in fact good things. It is the insight that is missing in every single damn think piece that has shown up on my newsfeed in the past two years. But how are we really to come to believe this, given all of our cognitive biases and our egoism and so on? Well, perhaps we can begin with a kind of catechesis. We can begin by drawing attention to the 10,000 clues around us that sin is, in fact, an accurate word for the condition in which we live and move, and that the doctrine of sin is, in fact, an immensely powerful cultural diagnostic instrument. It seems to me that this, this is precisely what Mockingbird has been doing for the past 10 years. This is the vision Dave had 10 years ago, that clues to these truths about ourselves about the laws we live under and the destructive forces of our egos, and also about the hope that comes from beyond. These are everywhere, if only you have the eyes to see them. In movies, in comic books, in the Beach Boys and Guns N' Roses, in the latest insights from the social sciences, and in the eternal insights of great art. I guess what I'm saying is that if you're here at this conference today, then you have, perhaps without realizing it, been part of a catechumenate. Mockingbird is in fact a quiet but powerful school of instruction for understanding Christianity in a modern cultural context 
where it otherwise comes as a shock and a puzzlement. But no one really believes this unless it first becomes personal, not even if they have all the right language and categories. You can't think your way into a belief in sin, not really. This is what Luther meant in that quote I gave earlier about sin being an experience, not a speculation. There is no effective catechesis unless it's your own life, your real life, like Aaron was talking about last night, that is being engaged. And your own real life, I've been trying to say today, is, I believe, one that takes shape under a condition called sin. It is our own bias against flourishing, our own cognitively hardwired self-absorption, and our own broken brains and bodies that work with grim inevitability to cause so much suffering. It's these experiences that enable us to understand this Christian religion of ours in this late modern age and in every age. It is only in our sickness that we recognize the physician. It is our sin that makes Christ intelligible to us. Thank you.